from now uh, will be um, by our calendar, by our Buddhist calendar, uh, the full moon of July. And in the Pali scriptural language, it's referred to as Asala Puja. It's the month of Asala. And traditionally, it marks the, uh, the beginning of the three months, three-month period of what's called the rains retreat, or Vasa rains retreats, the monsoon season in South, South Asia, Southeast Asia, at least a great part of it. So there's still, still a few of the monastic community away traveling uh, because uh, one of the aspects of the rains retreat is that we have restricted travel. There's restrictions around travel. You can only travel for so many days. It's called seven-day leave. That's the sort of maximum, and it has to be for particular reasons. You can't just go off wandering or um, off, off, uh, like for instance, just on a regular home visit or something like that. So, um, so some monks have returned from walking pilgrimage. They re- returned today. Picked them up at Armavati Monastery, where we, great, great many of us were this morning. Ajahn Kruniko has been away visiting. Um, his family, uh, Arjun Suchito, is in Italy teaching. We're still expecting uh, one monk. I'm not quite sure where Sister Kitignani is, but she'll be entering the, the rains retreat here. And so uh, a lot of all of that activity will settle down for those three months period. And so this morning, as I mentioned a moment ago, many of us from here went up to Amravati Monastery in Hertfordshire, our sister monastery, to witness a monk's ordination ceremony, Upasampada, the bhikkhu ordination. And six days ago, uh, similarly, a, a group of us went up to Amravati uh, on last Sunday uh, to witness uh, a siladara or nun's ordination ceremony, siladara pabbaja, going forth ceremony for siladara. And on both days there were three, three candidates took on this higher training. And these are um, not common occurrences in this country. And if you look at it globally, it's, you know, yes, you can say in, in Buddhist countries it happens a lot, but even still, you know, it's a small percentage of the population makes a commitment like that, takes that uh, 
you know, their, their spiritual life and deepens a commitment into monastic communal training. And to take on these, these higher ordinations or, or commitments, it, 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 uh, you spend time, as I think most of you know, as, in, as an anagarika or an anagarika in the white robes. And then for the monks, we have a medium, medium step, is that you're uh, in the ochre robes, but you're a novice. And then you have these ceremonies and uh, ordinations that I just mentioned. For me, I, I, I find them very uplifting, these ceremonies, and to participate, witness, be part of something like that, to see people making that move. It's my own experience of, of these. And it reminds, it can remind us of our own commitment to a spiritual path. Yeah, commitment to spiritual awakening. The, the word in, in the script, our scripture language, like a comp- contemplative or spiritual seeker is samana. Samana. And it's made up, the, the root of the word, um, at least the way I've learned it, is sama. Sama. And it's was at that time in, in India, it was also it was used also as a musical term to be in tune, one who's in tune, samana, in tune with, with the natural order of things, in, in tune with nature, in tune with each other. And when we hear that, maybe that phrase, in tune with nature, we might think, well, yes, I commune with nature, or I like being outside in nature. You know, we can take that word in a, in a few different ways. But in the, in the Buddhist sense, you know, what the Buddha was really pointing out are also the, the three characteristics of all, all things, all, all things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. And that's the that transient, impermanent, ephemeral nature. So that's one of them. That's the, the nature of all things. Anything that's formed or made or thought up, it has a lifespan. So a samana is, is realizing that really at a gut level, that realization that all things, all things are, are transient, all things have this impermanent nature, quality. Then the samana gets in tune with the, the unsatisfactory nature of, of, of all things. And to me, you know, see if, if something is impermanent, if it's transient, if it's shifting, whether it's a long time or a short time, that then I, I, I more easily can tap into that, that gut feeling of, right, how can something be satisfactory if it's not going to last? Or, well, you might think, 
yeah, well, what about the stuff you don't want? What about those mind states and emotional states and things that you, you don't want to last? How is that unsatisfactory? Good question, but uh, they could come back, right? They could come back, or it could get worse. <laughs> I think when I was up on the seat, this seat a few weeks ago, I'm, I may have mentioned that, that sometimes when, when something is the way we want, and maybe we're into Buddhist practice, we say, oh, well, it's impermanent, it's impermanent, but impermanent means changing, and so things can sometimes worsen. So you have these two, the samana tuning in, really on a gut level, clearly seeing into the nature of things that they're impermanent and unsatisfactory, unable to, to satisfy, which can be stressful. So that's another translation of this word dukkha, which is this unsatisfactory, this, I'm using that two different English words, dukkha, stressful, unsatisfactory, right through to suffering. And then the third is, is, at least for me, I find harder to, harder to talk about for sure, and that's this not-self nature that the Because the things that are formed, there is no, no unchanging essence in them, and that includes human beings and beings, living beings, that they're, whatever we are, it's, it's a changing, uh, changing thing, it's evolving. There's no sort of essence of, of this body. It's, it, was, it was brought together because of certain causes and conditions, and it's changing and shifting all the time and aging, and some gels are regener- cells are regenerating, and, and some, now that the aging process is, is becoming more evident, some of the cells are not regenerating. And then this body will... So there's no essence. It'll become something else. There's no essence in these, these beams. We call them beams, but they used to be trees. Before they were trees, they were soil and, and nutrients and sunlight and all these things. So there's no essence of trees. So this is, there's no, it's not self. But right now it's a beam. So samana is developing this, the contemplative samana, somebody contemplating nature, looking into nature, contemplating dhamma. And the very word dhamma can also mean nature, or things as they are, phenomena. And so, the word, the term samana is also oftentimes, at least in, in our scriptural tradition, and well, no, and also in the living tradition, it refers to the, the nuns and monks who have undertaken a monastic training. But I like to, I like to think of it in a much broader sense really just take the word as, as it is, as a, com- a contemplative, a religious seeker, whether it doesn't matter our, 
our outward form, but are we living the life of a contemplative? One could take up this training and be wearing the, the robes of a, of a Buddhist monastic or, or another faith, but if we're not practicing, if we're not applying teachings of some sort, you know, uh, spiritual teachings, if we're not actually you doing that, then I ask the question, are we a samana? Is, is samana, is the quality of a samana based on forms, external forms? And I'm sure, you know, people could, you know, have lots to say about this and have, have arguments for or against or whatever. So this is just a contemplation. This is just a, ref a reflection on that word. So I would venture to say that every one of us is in this room because we are contemplatives. I don't know for sure, but you know, I think it's to come here and live or come here and stay as a guest or come here just for the evening. There's something in each of us that's drawn to something bigger than us. You know, or, uh, tuning in to that that nature, trying to release the release the heart, because when we grasp at the things that are unsatisfactory, we grasp at things that are impermanent, that are changing, and we try to build up our happiness on shaky shaky ground. It's like building a house on a frozen frozen lake might seem, you know, really solid until springtime. You know, building our happiness around work, around relationship, around family, around status. We choose, you know, we choose anything really. If we build our life around things that are that are not not solid, not sure, not um, stable. So contemplating, all oh, right, because looking into what's around us and what's in us, contemplating, getting in tune with really, really so that gut level. One term that I think probably many or most of us are familiar with is vipassana meditation. It's it's a word used for a particular. Um, I don't really want to use style, but a type of meditation, which is quite broad term as well. But vipassana, clearly seeing into, you clearly, clearly see into the workings of the mind, the workings of the heart, the workings of nature. That's why also living in a forest, uh, Ajahn Chah, on the photo on the shrine there on the right, He's, he would really, uh, I think like probably scores of meditation masters, but uh, encouraging you to, to really look at nature. That's why we live in, we tend to live in natural settings, so you can really, even just looking in the forest, you know, sitting in the forest, walking in the forest, seeing the way things change. Uh, all the births and deaths that are going on with little critters and plants and trees and 
all of that, insects, seeing how things change. And we're a part of nature. Seeing how our moods change. I know sometimes it feels like moods aren't changing, when, especially when we, when we want them to. When that mood arises or that emotion comes, that, that sort of tsunami of, of emotion that might come from particularly something that we don't want, something that's, which is very difficult to bear, it can feel like it's not going anywhere. It can feel stuck. And yet, usually, I think probably for most of us, one day we wake up and we realize that it's not there anymore or that it's shifted. Even if it's years, years have gone by, things shift. Thoughts, I mean, emotions tend to, at least my experience is that emotions move much more slowly. They can come on very quickly, but they, they seem to move, move more slowly than my, my thought patterns, thoughts just so quick. So samana, getting, getting in tune with that. So we sit quietly, we come sit together in this room this evening, sitting quietly, the echo of our, of our days or whatever can be rumbling around, not going to just automatically shut off, you know, as soon as we sit down in this beautiful hall. But we sit quietly and we, maybe using the breath, for instance, this evening we chanted the the, the Buddha's teaching on the mindfulness of the in and out breathing was the, probably the key, key meditation instruction left behind by the Buddha. It's all breathing in, mindfully breathing in, allowing the mind to, to settle, giving the, giving the mind and heart that opportunity to settle. And by doing that, sometimes we can feel, especially in the earlier years of our practice we can feel that that we're not a we can't meditate or that we're not a good meditator or that oh well, that wasn't a good meditation because we're still thinking or we're still feeling but just that very you know just that very um, effort to stop moving just to sit and to feel, so let's say that there is a lot of, you know, emotion and thought and intellectual activity going on, it's just to, to feel that. Then you can see by sitting down or just doing walking meditation, by slowing down, we can see those energies. It's like the difference between driving on the M25 at 70 miles an hour and being on the side of the M25 broken down and standing waiting for the AA truck to come and just the, how fast. I don't know if any... I used to have very cheap cars that broke a lot when I, before I was a monk. So I spent a lot of time on the side of the motorway. And uh, just the speed of the speed of cars. But when you're in there, when you're in the... Oh, yeah, yeah. oh this, that car went a little bit quick. Yeah. So when we sit down... Maybe then we realize if we are experiencing quite, um, you know, active, active 
thought, active intellectual uh, or active intellect, or a lot of emotion, then by just breathing, all right, to see that and just seeing it, not feeling like we have to stop it. You don't have to necessarily stop the thoughts, but just keep going back to the breath. Keep returning to the breath. Body. And then we start to see, oh, right. You might see things, see the changing nature of the mind, the, the fickleness of the mind, the changing nature of our emotions. We get good news and, and how it's, you know, it's that peak moment and then you get something goes wrong or you have a difficult exchange with somebody or you get bad news and that's normal, that's just the human package. It's, part, it's, it's, it's what we pick up when we're born. Now we have different conditioning and how to deal with those things, but you know the, the human, the human package. It, it, we have an emotional world. We have an intellectual world, and it's really broad. It's really can be very complex, depending on you know our, here again our conditioning. So samana, contemplating, a contemplative looking into, getting to know ourselves, getting to know our habits. Also getting to know when things do cease. It's not just seeing the, the presence of things, but also seeing the, the absence. Noticing, you know, really intentionally noticing. Oh, and that's why when, if we can, just stop every day, even if it's just, if we can't give over, you know, coming over for an hour, coming here or sitting at home for an hour, if we can't do that, even just sitting for short periods or doing some intentional walking meditation or going for a walk, just to, to do something where, simplify, to, to simplify something, to, to do something in a simple way, and clear the head, decompress, Get to know oh, what's really going on. To feel. Oftentimes, we, as soon as we feel something, we try to figure it out intellectually. It's a very natural thing to do in, in my own experience. Why do I feel this way? And then it, we get back up into the head instead of staying, well, how does it feel? What does joy feel like in the body? It's interesting in the, the, the other key meditation teaching that the Buddha that's left behind in our tradition is the Satipatthana Sutta, often translated as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And the, the first one is body. And out of all, if, when you take the, if you were to, to, to measure in words how many words are in this sutta, body gets way more page space. And, just, and it goes through the mindfulness of breathing, it goes through you know, different body contemplations, you know, just being aware of how you're moving, it goes through the whole thing. And my teacher, one of my teachers used to really, or does really emphasize, yeah, get 
into your body. Because body doesn't really, to just experience the body, it doesn't, it doesn't lie. But the mind is pretty good at complicating things. It can, uh, it can weave, it, it gets it right, but it can also, it, has a, uh, it can have a great propensity to, to miss the mark and to speculate, project, assume, lie, <laughs> you know, lie to ourselves, spin lots of stories. And as natural as that is, when, you know, like let's say we are, we're in a meditation, and we notice that it's here again to go back to the body, and that's why this breath meditation that we chanted this evening, I find, you know, it's no wonder it's been the sort of key, one of the key meditations for thousands of years, I mean, before, before the Buddha. It was just a meditation that he learned. Get from the head to the body. And then oftentimes, so when we, we feel something emotionally, we all we point to the heart or the gut, you know, generally. It's in the body, but to actually feel that. And not let it go into the head, not let the intellect hijack that moment. Body, oh, where do I feel joy? Like today, watching this, you know, being part of the, the ordination ceremony. And I felt, I mean, I felt a few things, but and they were all positive. Joy was one of them. Also feeling moved whenever the, sometimes family members or friends, um, they help out by offering the robe and bowls. You know, that you have to have your set, new set of robes that you've sewn and you've got a, your alms bowl and... That's a moment that always, that moves me. That's how I respond to that. So just, how does that feel? Joy, I tend to feel quite light in the chest. When I, something, something unwanted comes, contraction, stomach or the hands the hands, like, that's why when we're sitting, it's like these body sweeping, sometimes referred to as body sweeping exercises, are so useful for just to slowly move through the body and just release maybe some areas of the body that we don't realize we're gripping. So it's using the body, checking, check in with the body. And then when thoughts do arise, then we can, we notice. Because, we're, because there's that movement towards simplifying, movement towards settling. It highlights, you know, when things do, when the mind does get more active, or we get more of a chance to see that. When we're, if we're overly active or overly engaged with complexities, sometimes you know, it's, it's very easy to miss. But let's face it, a lot of life is like that. You know, can't you know, can't just always necessarily have simple things. Not not all of us, at least. And even in monasteries, it can, things can can start to feel a little bit complex. But they didn't. They didn't. They need not be an obstruction. 
because even if we notice complexity is that we can that we can take that step back from the complexity using this awareness that we're developing this mindful awareness to say oh this is what complexity feels like this is this is the experience of complexity instead of just the mind figuring out how we can get out of complexity which feels feels natural if you don't want it All of us can do this, whether we're a samana in the monastic form, whether we're a samana in the in another form, or in a Buddhist form, or in another another faith, or no faith. Spiritual seeker. It's another translation for samana. Spiritual seeker. All of us can do this. All of us can can put forth effort to see these things, to see nature. It's not just not just Buddhists that everything is impermanent. <laughs> this is nature. And seeing in these last in this last week, seeing the three women last Sunday and three men this morning, yes, deepening their commitment to something very old form, Buddhist form, two thousand six hundred years hundred years old, um, been handed down making a deeper commitment commitment to to virtue so in those these ceremonies one of the things that that you're really picking up are more more training precepts more more guidelines more rules to live by so that you can free the heart and it's a bit counterintuitive you're giving up certain freedoms worldly freedoms. For instance, somebody I know who went, went through this recently um, was mentioning um, how surprised they were that, about giving up money, how they reacted internally. Because it's one of the major things you give up is any sort of uh, use of money. And they had no idea how much um, I think they even use the word attach, how, how, how attached they were to that freedom of using money. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, right. I can't, can't do that. I can't even just buy a bottle of water or, or something if I'm traveling, if I'm alone. Everything given, everything freely given by some kind-hearted, generous person. So that was a useful moment for them. That was a, a very useful, because then they could see an attachment, and by seeing an attachment, they can let go. 
even if it comes back, they can let go. But if we don't see what we're hanging on to, how can we let go? You know, like people that, uh, I forget what the name of the condition is, but where you don't have any feeling in your, your hands, let's say. And there's no nerve, nerve feeling. You don't feel heat or cold or, or, or even touch. And um, they need to be extraordinarily careful for obvious reasons, and especially around cooking. So if, you, you know, if they pick up like a hot pan or something, because if you don't know that you're holding something hot, you can't let go. We, when we touch something hot, we, we automatically let go. I mean, it's a really simple, simple um, analogy, but yeah, we need to know that we're hanging on to something that which is better let go of. And so that's one of the things I've found very useful about the monastic form. You know, you all these hundreds of rules, training precepts, you bump up against stuff. You, know, you can't just follow desire. Uh, Buddha, Buddha fam famously said, you can't get to the end of desire by by following desire. By satisfying desire, you won't get to the end of desire. You'll be gratified. There'll be some, some form of gratification. But will you really get to the root, that root of grasping? So this is, I think, what for me and, and, and thousands of people, you know, this monastic form you know, using using the form, and then when we're learning to let go, developing letting go, and then that's the inner freedom. So that we give up the, the worldly freedom for an inner freedom, and that's a natural that's a, a natural choice or a choice that we've made to put ourselves into this. But do we have to become a nun or a monk to do that? Can we find our own? You know, by developing that, that mind and heart that's aware, more awareness, more mindfulness of seeing, you know, finding, finding the things that we're grasping at. Maybe, you know, even just picking up, you know, the five precepts, I think they're so profound, you know, the, you know non-harming, non-stealing, relations, being, you know, loyal in relationships, you know, right speech, you know, not lying and then not using intoxicants, even just to pick up that to me is so profound as a container. And just to use that as a framework to, to live and see, all right, all of a sudden maybe things, things that, you know, we had maybe had a little bit more wiggle room, um, it, it creates a, a safe boundary, a safe barrier or experimenting with you know wholesome wholesome um, boundaries within our lives to create wholesome boundaries. A lot of the rules we have are, are really mundane. You know, just around community, they, they promote communal harmony and, and uh, organizational things. And the five precepts contains really the heart of, of that's the ethical content of all of our precepts, whether we're sila dara or or Anagarka, Anagarka, Samanera. So as we can create our, but it has to, it needs to be wholesome. 
Sometimes I've met people through my life where they say, oh yeah, I just, I've created my own thing, man. <laughs> and they have, I know many of them have ended up in pretty deep trouble. Sometimes even with the law. <laughs> Not just internally, but externally. You know, there's a long history of people doing their own thing. And I know I tried it. But to create a you know, you know, you know, something based on ethics. If it's based on ethics, non-harming, doesn't harm you, doesn't harm others. Using here again, maybe using the five precepts as a as a core. Then we can start to see the things that we're maybe see more clearly what's what we're grasping at, the things that bind us. One of the words, one of the translations for, for Nibbana or Nirvana is unbinding. Unbinding. There's many translations, but that's one that I find quite interesting. Things that bind us, that bind us to the world, that bind us to unhappiness or stress. 